Hey everybody, welcome to Hacking Into Security, your career-related cybersecurity show. I'm your host, Ricky Burke, the InfoSec recruiter, and regularly we'll be catching up with a variety of guests from CISOs, entrepreneurs, VCs, new people into the industry, and more. Each sharing their story, industry knowledge, and advice on how others can navigate success in their career. So sit back, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Hacking Into Security. So today's guest is Ian Dixon. Ian, welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have Ian. Ian's going to do a different type of podcast this week. So Ian's got a really interesting presentation he's going to cover. Ian's got a very, I think, interesting background himself. So to be honest, Ian's a good friend of mine. He's a ComfyCon Australia founder, cyber technical lead for Lidos, fellow fish and chip connoisseur, <laughs> and also fellow animal lover as well. And as I can see, he's an 11-week-old puppy running around in the background. Yeah, he's running around a little bit much. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> so my first question, I guess before the presentation is just, if you don't mind, my first question to all guests is, who are you? So I have been working in the cyber industry for about eight years now. I started off doing cybersecurity research, working way back when the Department of Defense. Um, basically, what we tried to do there is to work on better ways of making decisions. So you have all this information in cybersecurity. You don't know how you're going to make a decision based on that information. How can we make it simpler for a manager or someone who's a commander to be able to say, yep, we need to take this course of action. And so moving on from that, I sort of moved into an operational space. So I started taking on a cyber threat intelligence role. So this is where I started looking. I'm kind of known as the risk guy because I always talk about risk management and I have regular heated discussions with people about how to, how to implement risk management in a cybersecurity context. But it actually comes down to the fact that, you know, every decision we make in cybersecurity is honestly just a risk management discussion. It comes down to what is your risk appetite, what are your threats, and what are your vulnerabilities. So I started picking it up from there. Right now, as you said, I'm a cyber technical lead for Lattice Australia. Of course, I would use the normal precursor, my views don't represent the company. But what I do for them is I provide expertise and project advice on all cybersecurity matters. So any, any project that involves cybersecurity in some way, I'm involved to help set the overall strategy and to help them develop the solution. I'm a very technical person. I'm not necessarily in the managerial space. I like sitting on a keyboard and getting things done. I've helped build systems, I've helped do incident response, all those kind of different things. And that's where I sort of bring my knowledge to bear. Perfect. So if you don't mind, tell us a bit about what we'll cover today. I was asked to give a presentation a couple of months ago on hackers. And it's quite an interesting point that is something that people don't realize. We, we talk about hackers, we talk about threat actors, we talk about people you know, breaking into systems, but we don't actually fully understand what they are, what their motivations are how they organize. There's actually a lot of thought that goes into these things. And there's a lot of supporting infrastructure as well. It's not just necessarily somebody sitting on a keyboard and running some commands. When you start talking about state actors or organized crime, you start talking about the large C2 organizations, the large HR organizations behind those that actually support them doing the work. So I thought it'd be a really good way to sort of put together a presentation to sort of talk about the origins of where hackers came from, where the term came from, some basic information on cybersecurity and what that because this was aimed at a, a sort of a business audience, some information about what sort of things they look to do in your uh, organization, and then to talk about you know, some specifics about what the difference between some terms that we hear all the time. So we hear the term script kitty all the time. We hear the term state-based actor. So I generally, I, I've got some information on the difference between those and what they actually do. Awesome. Cool. So let's get started if that's okay. 
Yeah, no worries. So for those who will be listening in, the presentation will be available at some point. But essentially, getting stuck right into it, where is the term hacker come from? So the term hacker actually comes from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. It's not actually a computing term. It's a term that was used for people who worked in their model railway club. So model railways were a nice big thing during those days. And it was actually one of the big first areas where electronic control and electronic systems were brought in. So in the big actual, you know, proper railroad systems, they would have electronics to run the controls, to, to do the changing the tracks and that sort of thing. And so MIT decided, let's have a, a club that sort of emulates these things on a smaller scale. And so the term hackers actually comes from people who were hacking together solutions. So the, the term you can see here, a, a hack is an unconventional or unorthodox application of technology. Really what they were doing is they're taking something, I don't know, let's take a really bad example, a microwave or what have you, and they were taking the electronics out of it so they could repurpose those so that they could make their model railroad have a new function, a new way of doing something. And so a hacker, therefore, as the, the noun, the verb, I can never remember which one, is someone who hacks, who was to take those things, to take those electronics that were from unusual sources and be able to put them together in a working version that they could then use in the Model Railway Club. And so evolving from that, the next big change that came was in the 90s, and I'm sure you've seen this before, is the, the Hacker Manifesto came out. And so the Hacker Manifesto started talking more about people who were breaking into systems, people who were finding bugs, vulnerabilities in systems and actually exploiting those for their benefit. It was very much a counterculture at the time. It was a, a way of people sort of breaking out from the system and being able to do what they thought was, was the best way to do it. And really, this is where hacker, the term started coming into the mainstream. You start having, you know, your movies such as war games and hackers and all those, those things that, you know, obviously take a very Hollywood approach to what a hacker is. But all over the world, I'm, I'm aware that, you know, groups were getting together, you have you know, your traditional hacker groups like Cult of the Dead Cow and all those different groups of people who were getting together, not just to break into systems for the sake of breaking into systems, but to also gain knowledge. It was very much a, a way of people improving themselves and being able to prove how they could achieve something. Obviously, during this time, you also have groups such as, well, people such as Kevin Mitnick and people like that who were also getting out in the world as well and exploring from that perspective. So that's where hacker as a term started becoming more about computer hackers. The term originally used back in the, the sort of 60s was cracker. You were a cracker if you were breaking into a system because you were a safe cracker, essentially. Hacker started coming out as part of this. And so moving to today, there's a Google provides a definition. I think this is the Wikipedia definition. I actually disagree with this definition. I'll read it out. So hacker is a person who uses computers to gain unauthorized access to data. And that's one function of a hacker. There's a few more. And we can sort of look at that by looking at the CIA triangle, the confidentiality, integrity, and availability triangle, which I have here. So a hacker being someone who actually tries to steal data is falls within the confidentiality aspect. So somebody who wants to break into a system, take the data, sell it on to the next person, or give it to a competitor that comes within that first original definition. And you can see traditional aspects of that through things like the target breaches, the Equifax breaches, those sort of things. That was their intent. But the two lesser known ones and why hackers actually conduct their operations are the integrity and the availability piece. 
So integrity is something that's obviously very important at the moment in today's world because we're talking about election security. So election security, when we talk about cybersecurity within elections, we're not necessarily caring so much if someone's vote is is announced publicly. We're caring if that vote is tampered with, if the vote is changed by someone to achieve a different result. And so that's called affecting the integrity of that vote. Now, again, there are other aspects to this. So groups that have important scientific information, important long-term information, are generally more concerned with integrity than they are with the confidentiality of the information. Uh, Climate change information is a really good example of that. Being able to make sure that you have enough information over the last 10 years and it's all correct information so that you can make a judgment call based on that. And the third one available is, is what we generally call or we generally cover within things like disaster recovery scenarios. So my system is gone. How am I going to affect this? A great example of this, although I'm not saying it was a hacker that conducted this, was a census and the recent ATO issues that have been happening. So ATO, first day tax tax went up, the ATO systems couldn't handle the load. That's a cyber effect being occurred. So it's an effect that causes issues with the availability of the system. The census is another example. When we were hearing the news that said, you know, this is a DDoS attack, a distributed denial of service, that's a technique used by hacker groups to affect the availability of a system, to be able to bring the system down so nobody can access it and therefore have an impact on everyone there. I will just stop there if you have any questions so far, because I like this whole conversation aspect. No, that's really interesting. Understanding the, yeah, I guess where, where it all started. It's one of those things where, you, I don't know, you think about hackers and it's been around or they've been around for a while or people just acting in a certain way, but you don't always, or you're not aware of the origins of, of these things. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I, when I think about it, I, I graduated university in 2013. And when I graduated university, there weren't degrees in cybersecurity. Yeah. I did one course that was about business continuity and business resilience, which involved some cybersecurity aspects. Whereas, you know, today, 2020, seven years later, seven, eight years later, you now have official courses for cybersecurity. But even going back to the 90s to the 80s, these things were still around. What's changed in that period of time is the impacts that these things can have on us on a day-to-day basis. You know, when a system is brought down, you know, MyGov is a great example of this. When If MyGov comes down, then you affect Centrelink, you affect all these different systems and services that we rely on on a day-to-day basis. I think the reason why it's come more into the, the foray now is not necessarily because there's more of it, although there probably is more of it just due to the people who hear about it. It's probably just because of the impact of these things. So one of the things I always found interesting from your perspective is the business impact. And I know that's different topic but when we talk about hackers or people coming into the industry or things like that is there's a lot of people that don't always think about the bigger maybe picture <laughs> or the that that business impact and that's obviously may have stemmed from maybe your education or just awareness that because you didn't do a pure technical degree or cybersecurity degree maybe it helps you with a bigger picture view i think it's more i've worked in a operational space but I've also seen the bigger picture through research so understanding you know it's for me you know me I have this argument on a regular basis about you know the risk management piece and and the bigger picture piece like understanding that you know you are but a little cog within a business that you're enabling the business you're making sure the business can do its job I can't say for definite what particular part of it is 
that I focus on that, what the reason is. But for me, you know, understanding that cyber is not just technology, for example, it's people and business processes as well, and understanding those things because, as I'll mention later on, the hackers exploit those business processes as well. It's not just, you know, a zero day against a, a particular system. If they know how you operate and they know how a particular you know, let's say travel approvals operates, they will exploit that to achieve their outcomes. They don't care. It's not technical. And so for me, having that understanding means you start focusing more on how cyber fits within that greater organization because it's not on its own. It should never be considered on its own. And going back to, you know, these discussions about risk management, it's also, you know, what controls should I implement? Oh, I should implement all these controls. Well, no, you're actually affecting the business. You're choosing at this point to say the business can't do something. And if it's the thing that keeps the business afloat, then you're basically sinking the business. So it's a, it's a few different threads coming together, I think. Makes sense. So who are hackers? So we, again, we talk about the groups of hackers. Hackers as a term is generally, you know, it, it is sometimes used in the industry. The term I prefer to use is threat actors. There's a, a group of people who call them threats, but it's more specific to threat actors. And the, the diagram that I like using is this diagram that's provided by, it was written as part of some research by the Department of Defense in the US, and it describes threat actors in terms of a hierarchy, and it talks about six tiers of threat actors. So starting at level one, which is the most basic threat actors you can think of, and then reaching level six. Again, this will be in the, the slides as they go up. Just to talk through it, the lowest base of uh, actors we have are tier one, those are your script kiddies, your non-malicious actors. So people who have just downloaded something from the internet and going, oh, I'm going to play about with this and see how it goes, or they've done something that's not malicious in intent. So someone that's not actually configured something correctly, or they've just, you know, left a hole somewhere without thinking. And then above that, you have you know, your base level of criminals, disgruntled workers and programmers. I've had a few discussions about the programmers one because that seems to make most people that I know, for example, automatically tier two actors, which they find quite amusing. <laughs> but they're the people who can start, you know, not just download something, but use it in an effective way. They can start thinking about how they best deploy it. Now, we group those together from the diagram. Tier one and tier two, we group together based on the fact that they exploit pre-existing known vulnerabilities. So these are the type of groups that, for example, will download Metasploit and they'll use the inbuilt Metasploit functions, the inbuilt Metasploit exploits, as it were, to start achieving their goals. They won't create their own and they won't use what we call full spectrum, which we'll get to in a second. Above those two, we have tier three and tier four. And this is very much the cybercrime aspect. So organized crime and cybercrime and cyber mercenaries. So people who you know get paid some money by certain groups to achieve the goals of that group. So we talk about intent being driven by a third party actor. Again, the thing that brings those two groups together is they are they discover unknown vulnerabilities. So you have an application, let's say Java or Adobe, and they are the groups of people who will start looking through those vulnerabilities, through those applications to find new vulnerabilities and start using them, perhaps even selling them. Finally, we have, we start moving into the state-sponsored range. So we talk about tier five and tier six. So nations, state-sponsored, you know, that whole system of groups of people. So these are the groups that we normally talk about, you know, the US, China, Russia, you know, all those different groups of people who, you know, if you watch certain, uh, if you follow certain vendors branding, they use animals and those kind of things, right? Now, the really important thing to think about here is that nation states and state-sponsored activity can create vulnerabilities, but they use what's called full spectrum effects. 
Now, full spectrum effects is not just cyber. So they won't just create a vulnerability. And when I say create a vulnerability, they will put a vulnerability in the software. They have the resources to put vulnerabilities into the software chains that can then be exploited later. They have the ability to put hardware vulnerabilities into systems. These are the groups of people who not just find the opportunities that already exist, they create opportunities using the resources they have. That's not to say they don't discover unknown vulnerabilities and exploit pre-existing known vulnerabilities as well. They could do those things too. But they have the resources to support them to be able to create vulnerabilities in a multitude of ways. We talk about cyber being one effect. Arguably, espionage is another effect. Physically going into, you know, your traditional spies going in somewhere and actually uh, conducting some operations. We also start talking about vulnerabilities created using kinetic effects. We start moving into this military space as well. I've said before, one of my favorite actions that's happened in the last couple of years is a hacking attack against Ukrainian artillery pieces where they broke into the phones of the artillery operators, the Ukrainian artillery operators, the Russians reportedly did this, found the coordinates of the artillery pieces and then bombed them. Reportedly. Reportedly, yes. So they found the artillery pieces and then bombed them. So you have a cyber effect enabling a kinetic effect. Now, that's amazing. That's like next level. And when you think, you know, if you've worked in the military before, that's also an integration of so many different layers of complexity in C2 as well. Yeah, I mean, also maybe on a similar note, Stuxnet. Yeah, so there's this, the, the recent, you know, two days ago, three days ago, when the Iranians said, oh, we got a cyber attack and something blew up, that, again, has caught my eye as well. Now, we're obviously still not getting a huge amount of details, but, again, it's showing the physical effects that you can induce through cyber. You're not just necessarily doing something with the data. You're not just necessarily doing something in the software. You're causing an actual physical effect, something to happen in the real world. Within cyber, there's also the OT, SCADA, IoT space as well. You know, break into a a hydro power plant, for example, and you can affect the turbines. You know, all these things coming together in terms of effects is quite amazing to me. The list can go on and on and then the possibilities are endless. Yes, they are. And that's, there's so many different things that can sort of happen. And that's why... As a blue teamer and a red teamer, your your possibilities are endless. You always have to think through these things. Just one final thing that I will mention about the, the different tiers of threat actors is there's a correlation between the resources that the threat actor has and the volume of threat actors there are. So a tier one actor will have very little resources at their disposal. They'll have the internet, they'll have you know some tools, that sort of thing. But there's a lot of them. There's a lot of people at the tier one level. And so being able to take on those, to defend against those, you know, that's a high volume. When you move up to the tier five, tier six level, the resources at the disposal is insane. We are talking about organizations that are solely devoted to hacking. So you're talking about not only the people sitting at the keyboards doing the actions, you're talking about an engineering team who is building the tools. You're talking about the IT administrators of the computers who are supporting the operations. But even moving beyond that, you're talking about logistics, procurement, financial, HR, all of these groups of people that need to be that you essentially have a bureaucracy supporting your hacking group. So while you may only have 10, 20, 30, 40 hackers, you actually have a group of 100, 200 people behind them supporting those people enabling them to do their jobs so that they can actually go do the important work 
while the back end people, you know, make sure that they have the right, you know, caffe- caffeinated drinks to keep them going and that sort of thing. So it's not an easy thing to, to pull off. As a segue, the interesting thing about the announcement by the Prime Minister two weeks ago, which people are saying, oh, how do you know it's a nation state? How do you know it's a nation state? One of the things that indicates that it's a nation state is just the sheer number of groups, like industries that were targeted at once. Now, the techniques may not have been sophisticated, but to be able to pull off scale, exactly, to be able to pull off an attack against multiple different industries, multiple different companies, all those sort of things at once, that's what indicates state-sponsored to me, at least. Whether they used a zero day or not is irrelevant at that point. It's you had enough backing to to have the command and control above everything to say, you guys go after this, you guys go after this, you guys go after this, using the same techniques and technologies. Yeah, rather than a group of script kiddies getting together and uh, <laughs> doing some damage. So, the, yeah, so the likelihood is also, you know, script kiddies wouldn't necessarily have that I wouldn't say the word precision, but the the go, the the ability to work together in that situation to sort of direct themselves, make sure you're not targeting the same thing and, you know, those sort of things. Yeah. So Yeah, military-type precision. Yeah, and, and that's why I keep saying command and control, C2. It's, it's a military term, it's a military context. But, you know, it's integrated. We're talking about state-based actors, and I don't know the inside outs of state-based actors, but I would almost say that they're running these like military operations. You know, there's planning involved, there's decision-making, there's intelligence, all these things that get brought together to be able to say, yep, we're going to target this and we're going to use this technique and we're going to go in this way to make sure we don't get targeted. Just highlighting these, you know, the script kitties or script kitties, as some people will say, very much, very simple. They will, you know, use tools. I think like 10 years ago, it was things like a low orbit ion cannon from 4chan. Like they download it on their PC and start doing a, a distributed DDoS attack on something. It's very much for the term I believe is for the lulls. It's it's very much to for their amusement and to uh, to improve their standing in the community. Insider threats also obviously an interesting one, but you know the disgruntled person who might. The, the reason why they're more effective is because they understand the organization a bit more. It's not necessarily they might use more better tools, but because they know potentially where to put something or what to target, they're actually being able to use that knowledge that they have to be able to exploit the, the organization. Organized criminal gangs. So this is a grandmother with a Nigerian prince needs 100K, where's my checkbook? You know, we, we organize a, organized crime gangs have sort of evolved past that, but it still happens. Uh, the interesting one that's been happening a lot in the last year is the sextortion emails. So what they will do, and it's quite intriguing when you think about it, they'll take pastebin dumps or, you know, big dumps of passwords that you will normally see on things like have I been pwned in places. Yeah. And they'll then use that information to say, I have a piece of information about you that I stole from your computer. Now give me some money because I've got your, you doing naughty things on camera. I had a friend last year, he contacted me and said, what do I do? Yeah. And I said, have a look at this website. Have you, have you been hacked? And, or, you know, has your data been breached? And he said, yeah, actually it is. Mm. So look, just putting two and two together, obviously it could be six, but I think you're pretty safe. Just don't do anything. Yeah. 
And look, for, for people who don't work in a cybersecurity space or don't do things like um, individual passwords for websites, it can probably be quite daunting. But, you know, for me, I knew which websites were, were already hacked and I knew mm. which password they were saying. Therefore, I knew it was from a hack database. So, you know, I had that. Um, my partner had one as well and I went through it with her and we actually, you know, talked about it. And, and she's like, yeah, no, I get it now. It's, it's fine. And so... It's a good. It's it's a it's an intriguing technique to sort of establish trust. It's quite an interesting one from that perspective because you know they're not just throwing random information at you. They're actually giving a name and they're giving a password, and it makes them think, oh well, they've got some information on me. Yeah, try and try and build some credibility. Yeah, and then you have your uh, state-based actors. So state-based actors are very interesting. I've sort of researched them over the last couple of years. When you get down to it, a state-based actor is acting on the intent of the state itself. So a great example of this. So China puts out every five years a five-year plan and they'll say, we're going to work on these things, we're going to work on these things. And I believe the last one said things like green energy, mining, healthcare, and a few other things, for example. And so then you might see threat actors who are targeting healthcare, mining, those sort of things. Now, you could also make the judgment call that that's that actor, sorry, that's that state because of those reasons. And, and you'd probably be right. State-based actors are not targeting something for the sake of targeting them. They're, they're targeting something because of a reason de- decided by the political machinations of the state, the, the, the current climate in which they live in. Obviously, we talk about the Russian disinformation and hacking campaigns during the US elections. Now, obviously, the US being in disarray provides value to the, uh, the the Russian national state. It's not just a cyber, you know, it's not about information. It's about being able to, to disrupt something so severely that it, even to this day, we still can't get past this whole, you know, the Russians reportedly did this and, you know, you have people still refusing to believe that they did it, even though every national intelligence agency on the planet basically says it happened. So, being driven when when you get to that level of threat actor it's very much what does the state want rather than what does an individual want what does a group want and that's that's something that doesn't change very often you know you you have states that their intent is to make sure they are seen as the number one power and therefore they will report back they will target anything that seems to suggests that they are not the one, number one power and those sort of things. So it's, it's very interesting from that perspective. Time for a quick break. I'm Ricky Burke. In my full-time role, I'm the founder and director of CyberSec People, a leading cybersecurity recruitment company, where we support organizations across the US and APAC in hiring cybersecurity talent. Through our connections and reach into the security community, our deep industry knowledge, we save organizations time when hiring. We have a 98% success rate and a three-year track record that demonstrates we only have to send, on average, two applicants to find success. If your organization is hiring, reach out as we'd love to discuss what that means for you. In the meantime, thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of the podcast. So why do they hack? So anyone who's been to any of my talks ever will see this slide. And it's a risk management slide, I'm sorry. Uh, But I'll explain it. So, So risk which is a, it, it's, a, it's a calculation of the likelihood of something bad happening, let's say that. 
is, is dictated by understanding the threats to a system or an organization and the vulnerabilities within that system or organization. Again, as I said earlier, vulnerability can be both software, hardware, business process, people, you name it. If you use it within an organization, you can find a vulnerability in it. It could be a physical vulnerability in a building, like a building allowing people to walk straight in and therefore have access to a, a port on the wall, therefore they have full access to the network. All of these things are used. But when you talk about threat, threat's actually broken down into three other components. So as we discussed before, there's the capability of a threat. So what can they actually achieve? What can they actually do? What resources do they have behind them? There's opportunity. Everything is, you, you kind of have to be, be lucky. There's got to be that moment in time or there's got to be that, that ability to achieve change. You know, using an Adobe vulnerability on a system, you need to make sure the opportunity is that it has Adobe. If Adobe is not there, then it, you can't use it. Opportunities are time-based. Some opportunities are just, they have the p- particular application, they have the particular business process with the vulnerability. But the final piece of that is intent. So intent is what does the adversary actually want to achieve? I'll decide if you want to include this later, but I, I had significant issues. So recently, again, the Prime Minister's announcement, someone wrote up a report. So it was a, it was a company wrote up a report and they said, this is what they're trying to achieve. This is what they're doing. And I saw the report and the report said the intent of the actors targeting Australia was to install C2 infrastructure on Australian servers. And I'm, I'm looking at this, I'm going, no, it's not. Their intent is not to install software. Their intent is far beyond installing software on these systems. There is some other intent. They are either trying to take information, they're trying to steal or degrade information. And so intent can be very tactical. It can be, what do we want to achieve at this point in time? So I want to get into the system and I want to have access to the system. Cool, that's an intent. But there's an overall intent as well. What are they trying to get out of this campaign? What are they trying to achieve out of this entire situation? The bigger picture. Yeah, the bigger picture piece. They have a bigger picture as as well as we do. For a nation state, their bigger intent is to achieve their national goals. For a script kitty, their their overall intent could be, I want to get my name in the papers and, you know, not get arrested kind of thing. So it all really comes down to that that very high level of intent. And so there's intent to achieve the tactical stuff, which is pretty simple. It's, you know, I want to have this server compromise. I want to get to this. But it's the intent of the high level that I'll sort of talk about a bit. And so there's basically five primary intents. You can break, you know, for all those threat actors, there's only really five reasons why somebody will actually conduct a hacking or one of those operations. So financial gain is a big one. So, you know, organized crime, but we do see it in state-sponsored actors. WannaCry is a really good example of that. So WannaCry was reportedly North Korean actors exploiting Eternal Blue exploits on systems. And so what they did was they ransomware the systems and they said, please play it, pay as Bitcoin. Now that's a state-sponsored actor reportedly trying to gain financially. It's probably one of the few examples I've seen. Generally, it's, you know, your organized crime or your script kiddies that sort of play in that space. Reputation enhancement is another one in that sort of space. A good example of that is recently, I can't remember the exact example, but somebody built a botnet and then started targeting things with the botnet just to prove the capabilities they had because they actually wanted to sell access to the botnet. So it was... 
it was a recent one. I think it was maybe one against the ones at Christmas against Microsoft and PlayStation, I think maybe. But yeah, they were just, they were running DDoS attacks against these systems because, oh, we want to sell our services. So it was that, that reputation enhancement. It's marketing for them. It's, it's how do they get people to use their services? It's one, one way to prove your product. Yeah. And look, that's where we're seeing organized crime move to as well. They move, uh, the term I've seen recently is botnet as a service and ransomware as a service. Mm-hmm. So there are groups out there who will run your, a botnet that will deliver stuff. Well, you can deliver your payload and they will just run it on the computers for you. Uh, or they'll run the ransomware that you choose on there as well. And you just pay pennies to the dollar and they'll go do it for you. You don't need to set up your own infrastructure. It's just sweet. Seeking revenge is very much a insider threat, but you can also see it in some state-based actors, I think. I'm sure everyone can think of examples where a certain event has happened in the news and and then we've seen an increase of state-based actors starting to do stuff. I won't mention the specific ones for this one. Espionage, political, economic, or military. As I talked about before, cyber is becoming this piece which is now integrated into military operations, into traditional espionage, all these sort of things. You're starting to see different groups around the world who are, exp- who are using cyber as ju- just one tool as part of their arsenal. If they can't do a physical effect, like they can't break into a system through a door, they'll use cyber to achieve their goals instead. Political, social, and ideological. Kind of gone over that one a little bit previously, but state-based actors will choose to you know, achieve their goals through this, you know, the high-level uh, political goals. Ideological is an interesting one. You have your, your terrorism and your other groups in that sort of vein who will use cyber to conduct recruitment or they'll try and put their message across to people that they are trying to uh, support their their cause, their, their ideological cause. Anonymous probably fits within that sort of space a little bit when you think about what they do. You know, they're very, they have an ideological point of view and they will use cyber as a tool to achieve that. And you know, even though they are arguably in the tier one, tier two region of the threat actors, they still have that intent. Propaganda, this falls within two different things. You have the terms such as disinformation. So being able to put out your point of view and make your point of view known to everyone. So the use of, we're sort of moving away from traditional hackers in this point. We're talking more about the use of bots and social media and all these sort of areas as well, which arguably falls within cyber too to be able to put across a point of view that, you know, you can't really argue, well, you can argue with, but it seems like a valid point of view when it may not actually be a valid point of view. It's very much taking World War II techniques of dropping flyers over a group of people where we're now seeing that come into the 21st century. We're seeing Mm. the ability to take information, spread it across the masses and to try and influence their views based on that. In In a very targeted way. Being able to look like you are one of them, being able to say, I am, I am a citizen of your country, I like the same things you do, but also I have this view and you should take this view on. It's very much tailored specifically to the group. And, and they do this. It's not just when we talk about spam. Spam is very much you know, a shotgun approach. I'm going to send the same thing out to everyone and see what sticks. Whereas in the disinformation space, we're sort of seeing very targeted, you know, I'm going to go after this demographic of people with this piece of information in this way. And that way they can try and tailor it specifically to that group. It's very much a psychological point of view achieved using cyber as their technique. Just reminds me of marketing via social media. (laughs) 
So interestingly enough, the, the, the next topic I was going to discuss is how threat actors achieve their outcomes. And the, the model that I use is the cyber kill chain. I've shown my partner the cyber kill chain and she's just said it's a marketing strategy. <laughs> it's a way of it's a way of getting a foothold and then achieving an outcome. And arguably that's a marketing strategy. And when she explained it to me, I'm like, yeah, that it kind of falls within that realm. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. I guess moving on to that, how do they hack? Normally, I have a nice little demo and I run through a, a pretty phishing attack against Windows 10 and, and that sort of thing, but it obviously wouldn't have worked well in this environment. So I'll just so what hackers do can be broken down into a series of stages. So you can actually categorize the actions that a hacker takes on their way to achieving their intent based on a couple of methods. MITRE ATT&CK is a really good one. MITRE ATT&CK talks about the different techniques that an actor will use there's also the diamond model is a is an excellent one by Sergio Caltigaroni. Again, that's an open source one. The one I choose to use is the the cyber kill chain, the Lockheed Martin slash Lidos cyber kill chain. You um, would use that one. <laughs> yeah, I would use that one. I wonder why. And honestly, it's because I think this is quite an easy one to understand, and also it, it, it's very high level as well. But essentially, we can break down a, a threat actor's actions into these seven steps they need to achieve. So the first thing a threat actor will do is some form of reconnaissance. So they will try and find out about their target. They'll do some Google searches. They might do some active scans against server infrastructure. They might actually not. They might just look at things like Showdown and those sort of tools to find out what they can about the target whether that be the very specific person they want to target or that be an organization and therefore the people who work in that organization and bring all that information together so they can make a decision on how they're going to get into the system. The next part of that is what we call weaponization. So that's about taking the information and building some sort of payload that we can use, that we can exploit on the system we want to it compromise. For example, a really cool one I've seen before is you look at a, a business and then you go on their website and they have PDFs on their website. And the PDF standard will tell you what version of the PDF editor they are using to make that PDF so you can find the vulnerabilities for the PDF editor that they're using. You know, people do go to that level. Like they, they are searching for any sort of scrap of information they can use in order to gain that foothold and make sure they get that foothold, not just throw an attempt away and then get tipped off the uh, target, but how they can ensure their success. Uh, yeah, and there's there's a whole bunch of different examples I've seen on the reconnaissance that they'll do and then they'll tailor the delivery or they'll tailor the weaponization to meet those expectations. You know, knowing that a, an organization still has XP or Windows 7 systems is another example of that. You can then make sure you use certain vulnerabilities that are very specific to those systems or physical hardware. A really interesting one I've seen before is an organization with printers open to the internet. And because you know the model of the printer, you also know what software is running on the printer. Therefore, you can compromise the printer potentially and then use that as a foothold out. A whole bunch of different ways in which they can do it. Delivery is very simple. Put it in an envelope, send it over somewhere. Or <laughs> watering hole attacks, you know, create a website that looks very similar to an existing website. I keep saying that if somebody made a watering hole of news.com.au, that would capture a lot of people in Australia. And being able to, you know, download some sort of payload to their system so that they can then run it on their systems, either through their own choice or through some sort of automated exploit. Exploitation, therefore, is, you know, exploiting the system. Now, 
exploitation can be exploiting a person. Exploitation can be, I'm, I've got this file in an email that looks like a PDF and I'm going to run it and, oh, it turns out to be an EXE file and I've just given it admin rights. You know, we, we try and say those things don't happen anymore, but they still do. And sometimes those techniques are still the, the most useful for a threat actor to use. It could even be the reported technique that was used by the threat actors in the ANU breach. Reportedly, they had a fileless malware in the email that when you read the email, it would automatically run the exploit. Now, I don't necessarily think that's true for a number of reasons, but it's within the realm of possibility. There's no reason why there couldn't be a vulnerability in a renderer of a system that enables an exploit to run. A great example of that recently is the, uh, I don't know if you saw the image. So there was an image that someone took, and then if you sent it to an Android phone, it would break their Android phone. Yeah, that's a few months ago, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was because it, it it used a weird color space. So the colors on the, the, the phone was perfectly valid, but it used a, a weird color space that when you send it to Android phones, they would crash. Again, it's another example of, you know, you just render the image mm. and boom, you've got an exploit. I don't know if that one was actually used for exploitation, but the same technique's been used before. Installation is about getting a foothold. So installation is about making sure that you stay on the system, that you don't get kicked off the system, you know, whether that be just installing on a single PC or conducting pivoting within the network to actually est- establish a few systems in case one of those systems gets brought down or re-imaged or they catch you. And so it's about establishing those things. Command and control, I've said it a lot in terms of the command and control of people, but within a piece of malware, there is a command and control aspect as well. You tell the malware what to do. You give it instructions on how it should conduct its operations. You know, within ransomware, it's about, you know, start ransomwareing the system and then send back the encryption key so that then when somebody clicks the button, they can we can actually decrypt their system because, you know, their business model actually relies on them being able to decrypt the system. Otherwise, you know, why would we pay you money? And then the final thing is action on objectives. So that's about in achieving intent. So again, it could be a very tactical intent. It could be, I just want to get this piece of information because this supports a whole bunch of things further on. Or it could be, this is the fu- absolute final thing that I want to do in this sort of situation. I've now completed everything that I want to do. So some of those steps can be sometimes missed, but generally that's how an actor actually does their job. It's how they'll actually move from, I know nothing about the system or I know nothing about the target through to, okay, cool, I've done everything I need to do. And that's basically what I had. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I guess for anyone that hasn't got the depth of knowledge, it's a really great introduction and nice overview. Thank you so much for that. No, that's not a problem at all. I'm, I'm glad I can sort of help because... This is stuff that I've picked up over a number of years. It's not something I'll have straight away. And it's it's good to sort of dispel some of the myths. <laughs> I was I was reading a chat room today about, about Zoom, this, the, the whole should we use Zoom or not thing. And someone made the statement, well, threat act, uh, state-based threat actors are in my, are relevant to me. Therefore, no, I don't use Zoom. And it's like, yep, that's great. You know, understanding your threat actors and understanding your hackers means you can then choose everything else based on that. Because quite honestly, a state-based actor isn't going to be interested in you if you're just a mom and pop shop somewhere. It's only going to be unless you can provide something to achieve their intent that they'll actually care. Very topical. Uh, what was your uh, feelings or thoughts on TikTok? <laughs> so I think... So the, the, there's a couple of different issues with TikTok. One is 
One is the application is doing certain things, so it's saving copy paste and that sort of thing. My understanding of that thus far is there's actually a whole bunch of applications that do that on iOS, for example. LinkedIn apparently does it. I think it's actually a workaround for some of the restrictions in iOS, in which case it's a bad thing, but I don't think it was necessarily intended as a capture for clipboards. It was just a, a workaround. It's interesting when you start talking to software developers, oh, we'll just do this. Well, actually, that's actually got security implications. Correct. You know, it's not until you actually reveal those things that it, it becomes clearer. In terms of TikTok as an application, I think any application that captures so much information, like it captures images, you know, there's nothing special about TikTok other than who owns TikTok. So it really comes down to who do you trust? Do you trust Snapchat more than you trust TikTok? Do you trust Vine when it was around more than TikTok? All these different things. Or you'd be surprised the amount of information these applications steal. And then you're basically trusting them to to apply permissions, to apply so that those things are not, not stolen or not seen by somebody else. I think one of the reasons, I know the US, I think it's US Defense has recently said no TikTok. And I think the main reason is, isn't necessarily the application sending information back. It's because the sailors will do it in rooms and areas that they're not supposed to use it in at all anyway. Wow. It's more about the way you use the application than the application yeah. itself, I think. I don't have any other specific information on TikTok to be able to, to give that much of a sort of a judgment on it anyway. Yes, it's interesting. Yeah. Is, is that itself a weapon or is it just another app that's being used? Who knows? Well, so there was an interesting discussion and it's a related one, the COVID safe app. So one of the things that was discussed at the time, and it's equally as applicable to, to TikTok as it is to any other application. Once you've given permission for that application to be installed on your system, you get automatic updates and you don't necessarily know what's in those automatic updates. You are relying on Apple, in some cases, or Google to verify that the updates haven't done anything malicious. But the moment you you approve an application, you say the application is fine, you're opening the door to allow other things to come in. So to go back to your point about is it reconnaiss- uh, is it information or a weapon? Well, arguably, TikTok in its current form collects information, which could therefore, you know, if it, if it was being made available to different groups, it could be used for a reconnaissance. If someone then exploited TikTok or if TikTok were exploited, you know, chose themselves, you could then deliver malware exploits, that sort of thing, through that, through that application. People generally when they choose to install an application, that's when they'll make the decision on the trust of the application. But they don't realize there's actually a whole life cycle moving forward that they've given the trust at that time. Therefore, any changes that happen after that, you have to make a decision. It's not until you see it on the news or something like that and then you go, oh, crap, I've got that application installed on my (laughs) system that you then go, okay, I'll uninstall it now. Very interesting way to look at it and makes a lot of sense. Hmm. In, thank you so much for your time. That was such a, yeah, that's a great presentation. I felt like that was a personal presentation there, so thank you. <laughs> and looking forward to getting this out there and, and sharing this with more people. Yeah, not a problem. I'm glad it's going so well. And obviously, I'll see you soon, I'm sure, when COVID has sort of stopped and Melbourne gets let out of isolation and all that kind of stuff. Indeed. If not, I'll see you back online. <laughs> <laughs> Always, mate. All right. Thanks for your time. Thanks for listening. And if you've got any questions, comments, please reach out to me. You'll find me online anywhere, CyberSec Ricky. And if you would like to be involved in the future, maybe be a guest and then reach out as well. Thanks for your time. Have a great day. Bye.